Hello and welcome to the Hustle and Bustle podcast. My name is Nicole Bennett and I'm an urban and regional planner and I'm the host of this podcast. Each episode I bring you conversations with city shapers and urban thinkers, leaders in the field of urban planning and city building. I'm located here on the beautiful Gold Coast in Australia. We are one of the host cities for the Brisbane 2032 Olympics and Paralympics. The next 10 years is being described as the golden decade for our city and our region. The conversations on this podcast help us understand the opportunities and challenges ahead. So please take a minute from your busy hustle and bustle day and let's have a great conversation. And welcome to episode 15 of the Hustle and Bustle podcast. I can't believe we're three quarters of the way through season one of the podcast. I'm really enjoying recording these episodes and I hope you're enjoying tuning in each week. Amazingly, we've had almost a 1,000 downloads of the first 14 episodes, so thank you to those who have left a rating or a review as it helps others find out about the podcast. What I particularly love about the podcast is how each week I'm taken to a vastly different area of planning and city building, and this week is no different. I'm honoured today to be joined by Dr. Stefan Ikovic. Dr. Stefan is Principal Scientist at CSIRO, working in the field of strategic foresight. CSIRO is Australia's national science agency. He has devoted his career to helping governments, companies and communities comprehend patterns of change so they can make wiser choices and secure better futures. Dr. Steph is the director of the Data61 Insights team at CSIRO, where he leads a team of researchers working on scenario planning, megatrends analysis, risk analysis, and so much more. He has academic qualifications from UQ and the University of New England in the fields of geography, economics, and decision theory, and he's widely published um, across international scientific literature. Uh, with a combination of original research and the provision of consulting and advisory services. But one of my favourite publications from Dr. Steph is Global Megatrends, which details a set of significant shifts which are affecting our people, places and planet into the future. Welcome to the podcast, Steph. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? Thank you, Nicole. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. I'm very well. We've just bought a little puppy dog, so the family's all very happy. And uh, delighted to spend some time talking with, to you about about these things. That's great, and thank you for that. Um, puppies are always fun in the family. I'm, I'm hoping right. they can, it can be quiet for this little bit while we record the episode, but um, no doubt you <laughs> might hear a little bit of background noise. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. Thank you. <laughs> so I thought today, whilst puppies are great, but uh, another passion of yours is uh, digital technology, and right. I'm really keen to understand. How digital technology is going to influence our cities and regions into the future? Yeah, thanks, Nick. And I think it does have a pretty profound implication that, that the planning profession is still getting across. But basically, you know, let's start at, the, at what's happening in COVID-19 during the pandemic. We've seen telework, telehealth, uh, online retail, online education all boom. And I think we've seen a significant separation of the need to be in a location to do work to buy stuff at, at shops, to get healthcare services, to get education. You don't have to be there as much. And it's also been normalised. So the digital technologies that we're using now that allow this to happen are getting better and better. But there's also a, a normalisation and acceptance of it. I think longer term, yes, this does have an impact in how our cities take shape. 
you know, I don't think it's over for the CBD in the pandemic. I think the CBD bounces back as it often has, but it might look different. You know, a lot of us are talking about the three two-day work week where we work uh, three days in the office and two days at home or vice versa, two days in the office and three days at home. And that might be the norm for a lot of people. Within the tech sector, you know, where I work, quite a few companies are finding their employees do not want to go back, period, so that they're going to move more towards digital. So that's one of the ways digital has an effect is it it separates the need to be physically present uh, from to, to be able to earn your income, to be able to do shopping, to get healthcare, it removes that need and it allows your settlement patterns to change. doesn't mean we, we all, you know, some people will go and live in Byron Bay and some and parts of regional Tasmania and I think we can see that in property market data, uh, but a lot of people will still live in the city centre, but the uh, all-important experience factor is what matters. So what matters for the Gold Coast, I think, in this golden decade you refer to, is really delivering on that experience factor. People don't have to live somewhere. They'll live where they want. So you've got to look at what makes a place really desirable to be in. Yeah, and as you say, people don't need to physically sort of be next to each other in order to connect or in order to purchase goods or services or, you know, that e-commerce that you mentioned is is such a huge growth market. And, yeah, yeah, I, I think it's fascinating to just see how that's going to evolve into the future. Yeah, and I think it, that's right, Nick, and it's at its early stages too. At, today, only 16% of all the stuff bought in Australia was bought online. You, you know, you might think it would be a lot higher by now, but it isn't. However, it's moving up really quickly. So there's a lot of change that lies ahead. That, that means 86% of the retail purchases that are done in physical shops. And we're going to see that shrink quite a lot, I think, in the coming decade, and it's really going to have a big effect. But uh, the other areas, telehealth and telework, are similar. So I reckon we're at, at the early day, days of this journey, and then it has flow-on implications for settlement patterns, where people want to live, and mobility patterns, where how they want to move. Yeah, totally. Well, 16%, I, I agree. I think I thought that would have been a lot higher. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I mean, I do a lot of my shopping online. I I buy, um, you know, food every week online. Um, yeah. I buy most of the stuff for the kids online. I guess yeah. one thing that I struggle with is not being able to try things on, but I yes. know through technology that's going to change, um, being able to do that sort of digitally. <laughs> I, I have seen some early models. We're yet to see them get out there, but I think there is a future where, you know, you, you basically have a device that you stand at home, it scans you and it works out your exact body shape and, and tailor makes clothes for you. I think that future is coming. Um, it sort of has a couple of things to, to get to being there, but it's not that far off that we'll be able to solve some of that. But I know what you mean. For, for clothes size, I've just bought a suit for the school formal dinner tonight the, for, for the parents. They do one for the parents at our school. So we all dress up, and I don't usually wear a suit, so I had to buy a suit, and yeah, online failed entirely for that uh, <laughs> effort because I just couldn't get the sizing right. I had to go in and uh, try on some suits. So what do you think? What are the technology trends that will have the greatest influence on our built environment, do you think? Is it is it just this sort of e-commerce or are there other broader trends that you're seeing? Yeah, I think telehealth and um, online work and online retail are, are really big drivers. Yep. But other ones that have a subtle effect that are important is, is really artificial intelligence. The ability for the computer to problem solve, the, com- the computer or machine or robot to problem solve, um, without explicit guidance from a human is really significant in terms of what that ha- is able to do. The last few years have seen some big advances in natural language processing, 
uh, machine learning, computer vision, uh, robotics, uh, all fields of artificial intelligence. So, so my team wrote the artificial intelligence strategy for Australia. That was launched by Minister Karen Andrews in November 2019. Yeah, right. And that's uh, led to a lot of activity. But it is going to allow town planners to get way more creative about how they design cities and how they uh, develop town plans. We'll be able to use data science and artificial intelligence to really optimise uh, over long time periods and then over fairly short time periods in terms of how a city is operated and managed. Uh, so I think that is that is part of uh, the, the the shift that we're going to have is artificial intelligence. The other one I want to call out is all the jobs and industry growth in digital. Yeah, digital tech, if like uh, on the Australian Stock Exchange, the All Tech Index, which has groups like REA Group, uh, which is RealEstate.com, Car Sales, Appen, Afterpay, Wise Tech. Companies which have basically built software or web platforms have seen just astronomical growth uh, already before COVID, but then it just sped up massively during COVID. And there's a divergence of the tech sector, company, like NASDAQ versus Dow Jones in the United States. There's this divergence of the two indices and the Australian tech sector is lifting up. And I think it is actually a really important growth engine as we come out of the pandemic uh, in, in terms of industry growth. And it's also really important for diversification. So if you were to look at the Gold Coast, I think we should be doing the overlay to say, well, where are the digital jobs going to be and what what uh, is the infrastructure we should be putting in place to respond to this emerging digital economy? You know, there'll be lots of people living on the Gold Coast right now who are exporting services over the internet, be they architects, lawyers or software engineers, to the world, but they're doing it from the Gold Coast and that's generating a lot of income. I think we need to start to understand how big this industry is and also um, how to how to support its growth and development. And uh, that's something my team is looking into more, and I think geography plays a role. I, I actually think we are finding evidence of the formation of digital industry hotspots, or geographic clusters, where the uh, digital workers are concentrated, and they are effectively powerhouses of the digital industry. And that's a big opportunity for councils to start to figure out where they are within their council areas and what they need to do to, to boost the development of them. And so what are you seeing as, like, what are some of the drivers of those trends? Like, is it, is it that experience? Is it that lifestyle factor? And is it kind of where they're getting high-speed internet? Or what are some of the kind of key attributes of these places where these hotspots are occurring, do you think? Yeah, digital infrastructure quality, high-speed internet, is absolutely important, actually. Uh, and that can't be understated. It does have an effect. It's been looked at time and time again by economists, and they find uh, higher rates of GDP growth in those locations and regions or more economic activity where the internet connectivity is better. Uh, and I think it's causal as well. It's not just a relationship. It actually leads to, to those opportunities. But I think lifestyle gets really important, and then connectivity uh, the ability to move from those locations to other locations. Um, but I think we're still fleshing out what, what it really looks like. And um, you know, we're, we're going to see some really interesting developments in Sydney where I've worked and a lot. And I think Central Place has got um, the Atlassian Tower. This, this massive development is going to be all focused on the tech sector. And yeah. they, those buildings are being designed to respond to the needs of also, itinerant, like if you're building an office tower today, you wouldn't build it with offices with the expectation the person is going to be sitting in that office 
know, from nine to five, Monday to Friday. It's unlikely to be that way. Probably the reason they come to the office is socialization. They want to hang out with other, their, their other colleagues and be able to interact and, uh, have meetings. And I think that's what the designers of these new buildings, the more forward thinking ones, are really looking at how they deliver that experiential factor in the office. You know, you don't have to be there. You've got to want to be there. So you've got to build an office you want to be in. Yeah, it's fascinating. And and it just reminds me during the week, um, I read an article, you know, we have a crane index on the Gold Coast. You know, yeah. it, it tells us how, how well our construction sector is doing and, and yes. you know, at the moment, the, the index is, has never been better. I think, um, RLB right. have been monitoring it for five years and wow. we've got the most cranes in the sky than we've ever had. And, yes. but they are all, except for one or two, purely residential. And then the two right. that are sort of non-resi are kind of mixed use, you know, so they might have a coffee shop yeah. or something on the ground level, you know, very sort of totally yeah, right. Um, and I, and I think the major one that is sort of the non-residential is, the old hospital site in Southport, which again is not delivering an office outcome. It's delivering kind of showrooms and, and kind of that mixed um, industry business type area, which may suit some tech businesses, I guess, um, more in the, you know, manufacturing or production sort of space. But mm-hmm. we're really, the Gold Coast, I don't think, has delivered many new commercial buildings recently. And so just pulling, pulling on that opportunity that you've mentioned, I think that there is a real yeah, need potentially in that space to to really consider what our future workspaces look like on the Gold Coast. And yeah, I think you're right, Nick. And do you think that the Gold Coast needs to figure out like a central location where this should occur? Because <laughs> I know this is an issue. <laughs> well, we have figured out the the central location. All the planning yeah. documents tell you it's Southport. Okay. Um, and I think that you know there is certainly a new drive for Southport. There's a new councillor yeah. in Southport and. There yeah. seems to be some momentum there, and I know that um, that that she is looking quite closely at um, whether council could move its chambers there, and and what else is needed to happen in order for Southport to become the CBD. Yeah. Um, but I think you're right. If you look at kind of where the job disbursement is across the Gold Coast, it is it is in a, a number of different centres. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I I still question whether that really is a a, a value that the Gold Coast has is that it yeah. has all of these multiple centres with, you know, different offerings. But you, you might well be right, and I didn't mean it as a loaded question. I just wonder how these things take form spatially. I mean, if we look at Sydney, we can see an unambiguous cluster of digital technology industries growing around Central Station, Everly, yeah. uh That's where Data 61 is, but the, and the Atlassian Building and the new Central Place building, which is going to attract tech sector companies. And we can see that forming as a pretty clear cluster. I think in Brisbane, we can point out Fortitude Valley, uh, where my offices are with Data 61 moved into the precinct on, in, on Brunswick Street Mall. But around there, we, our analysis is revealing a large number of startups and small digital companies and then some larger ones as well with yeah. pretty strong growth around it. And it does look like they tend to cluster in these locations when you look at maps of, uh, the concentration of digital workers uh, relative to other workers, and you can start to see where the concentrations are very high. Uh, we can see that happening in some of those locations. And, yeah, it's it's an interesting question, but it isn't necessarily a one-size-fits-all. Fit, I think you're right. There could be strength in a geographically dispersed model of the Gold Coast, but the Gold Coast also just has these incredible lifestyle benefits for people. 
in that you want want it to work for them, and that could be the the thing that attracts the digital worker to the Gold Coast. So you know totally. they may well they may well want to be in Burley Heads or Tweed or or any part of the coast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just want to take us back um, to you mentioned AI, and yeah. AI to me seems uh, like a movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know. I, I can understand how it might work um, in a yeah. kind of fictional sense, but I'm really yes. interested to understand how it could support planners and architects and, and kind of people who shape cities. How can AI help us into the future, do you think? Yeah, well, let's let's try and give you some examples of the sorts of things it could do. But if you were if you were addressing this issue on the Gold Coast of where the digit how to group bolster the growth of digital industries and you wanted to know how to set up zonings to to maximize the chance of that artificial intelligence combined with geographic information systems could actually start to optimize where certain zones could be created to achieve that outcome or you might be seeking to achieve other outcomes it might also be that you know town my view town planning is a multi-objective optimization problem you've got social objectives environmental objectives economic objectives and you're trying to resolve the trade-offs as you construct a town plan but imagine a machine learning based approach which studies data from cities all across the globe and finds correlations and relationships and patterns in that data so that it can tell you the optimum configuration of of how much residential where it should be um, how that's likely to influence traffic flows but I think this this is something that CSRO and Data61 is working on increasingly is what we call a digital twin where we get a city like yes. the Gold Coast and we build an entire digital model of it but then that allows us to optimise and we can ask questions or a, a colleague of mine who's an artificial intelligence expert in the field of gener- generative adversarial network scans has just shown me this really interesting piece of research he's done which he's trained up the, the computer models to learn about the optimum siting of a museum so that if you were to ask a question in a new city about where the best place to locate a museum would be, it learns from about a you know, thousand other cities and towns across the globe with museums about what's worked and what hasn't to be able to give you the optimum advice about where that, that museum might be located. So that's one set of applications uh, that town planners can can use AI for is to get a whole lot smarter about um, the decisions we're making. But another big opportunity in town planning and, and city development of AI, I think, is automated appraisal of development applications. So development assessment is a long, slow, tedious process. It can sure involves is. a lot of work, yeah. Uh, but it is also heavily rules-based. It's exactly the sort of thing you would want to use AI for because a lot of it is just ensuring that the proposed development is consistent with the plan uh, and ticks all the boxes uh, in terms of it, the building codes and the planning codes. But I think there is vast scope to bring AI into this so that the AI can read the development assessment and then automatically check it off against lots of the codes. Now, it doesn't cut out the town planner. It just lets the town planner focus on what they're good at, which are all the creative questions, the questions about landscape aesthetics, um, the, the more complex judgments that it's not doing. It, AI does all the boring stuff for us quickly, fastly, and quick, quick and efficient and accurate, probably more accurate than we can be. It rarely makes a mistake and you know, incorrectly assesses a proposal against the town plan. It, it will do that really well. But then, you know, you use the town planner for where they're strong and you use their intuition, their judgment, their knowledge, 
their logic, creativity uh, to be able to create the sorts of cities we want. So, you know, at the moment that hasn't happened too much in the town planning profession, but I think that's where there is an opportunity to use AI is to to really automate a lot of the uh, code accessible type work or code assessment work, if that's a fair way of calling it, yeah. and to push push the town planner into those creative questions that help us design really amazing cities. Yeah, no, I, that sounds fascinating. And, and I guess the only concern, or not concern, but reservation I, I have, um, is that, you know, we, you know, some, some allied professionals that we have, like traffic engineers, they use models, you know, and, and often we see the outcomes of models maybe not representing yeah. kind of a people focus, you know, and it, it tends to, you know, and I, I guess it's, you know, you put crap in and you get crap out, you know. Absolutely. So how does AI kind of solve that issue of, of data and, and of ensuring that kind of it makes sense, that the outcome actually makes sense on the ground? Yeah, and that's such a good point, Nicole, and that's what I think we need to be aware of when we use AI. It it does not replace the human, and if you think it can, it fails. But there's a lot of really that you, you want to be, do, to be doing the rules-based, repetitive and highly structured stuff. And it does that really well, but you've got to know its limitations. And you're absolutely right. Crappy data in leads to bad outcomes out of the AI. Most AI is trained. We call it training of a machine learning algorithm. You know, to be, for Google's, um, algorithms to be able to recognize what's a picture of a dog versus a cat. It just gets fed millions and millions of pictures of dogs and cats until it eventually picks up the patterns and then it can determine the next one with very high levels of accuracy. And the same sort of thing would be possible in a town, in a development application. But it wouldn't do everything. You would still need somebody overlooking all of that to be able to pick up where it wasn't working and where where it's not going to provide the correct judgment on what should be done. So it's an information input that needs screening, but it just allows the if, – if a lot of AI, when it works well, is harmonized with the human operator. Um, yeah. So, you know, a story I like to tell is of the Viking Skies cruise ship in Norway uh, that was making a voyage uh, across the ocean. It was, a, it was built in 2017 and had a lot of highly advanced autonomous systems built into it. So a really advanced cruise ship, uh, and it was in heavy seas. And uh, the algorithms and sensory systems picked up that there was below critical threshold levels of lubricant in the engines. And that's dangerous because the, the engines can explode, and that's a really bad outcome. But the problem was it was just because the boat was moving around so much. It's like if you swish a wine glass around, the bottom stays dry every so often. That was happening in the uh, the inside the, the cruise ship with the engine oil, uh, and it then decided to shut all of the engines down in the middle of a big storm and about 100 metres away from rocky shallows, oh. putting the 1,400 people's lives at risk, and it didn't oh, have a human. No. There was no human in the loop. So software engineers who studied this have said, you know, they really didn't think through the human in the loop issue. It needed a human to put another overlay of judgment on what it yeah. had decided to do, to say, yeah, we would shut the engines down normally if we were in calm waters in the middle of the Pacific, you know, just cruising along, and then we could have fixed and repaired and got going pretty soon after. But you wouldn't risk it now because uh, the risks of, of the engine blowout are way less than the risks associated with getting dashed to pieces on the rocks and having the ship capsized. So they <laughs> totally. managed to, yeah, they averted the situation. Tugboats got the, they had 
they had about 700 people lifted off on helicopters and the other half were taken, uh, stayed in on the boat and were, were eventually uh, got, when they started the engines the next day, they got to shore. But it was a scary night uh, on anchor. The thing that we learned from that, though, is the human in the loop and the importance of harmonisation with a human. So when the town planning profession does well at AI, it will have cleverly harmonised the judgments of the town planner with the autonomous system. So a lot of the work you frankly don't want to do, which is boring, repetitive, dull, really rules-based, does does this building exceed or not the height limit for this area, those sorts of questions. That can be done really quickly. But then the more interesting stuff comes over to the to the town planner where we can focus our effort. And I think ultimately we get a bit much better outcome. But if we just blindly believed what the AI said, I think yeah. we'd be in a lot of trouble. And we're learning this more and more. And this is something – this is why I think it's important for town planners to start learning what artificial intelligence is all about uh, fairly early on in their courses at university so they can appreciate the output that it gives. Yeah, and so it's a tool. And, and I think that um – yeah, you've summed it up really well and it makes me understand it a lot more is that, you know, it, it removes the human error or it could remove human error of kind of those rule-based decisions, but then it, it's a tool and it gives us that ability then to, yeah, understand exactly kind of what um, the assessment is against those rules and then we can make the judgment calls that might be required. That's right. And I think there's vast scope to improve the town you know what the town planner does by the adoption of autonomous systems for uh, development assessment would be where you point the, the finger immediately because that is amenable to automation but there would be there's, there's other areas as well and then helping with complex optimization problems that let us look at a, a city plan like say a zoning scheme even for example and it actually works out the zoning configuration that that minimizes traffic congestion that maximizes job creation that um, minimizes carbon emissions or environmental outcomes and it cleverly starts to sort out a lot of those things for us i think there's another opportunity to start using ai or just data science in in those areas too totally Okay, so I guess that's one of the challenges or the traps of, of, you know, the digital technology space. But, you know, I, I guess I'm reminded time and time again that just because it's got the word smart in front of it doesn't mean that it's a smart outcome or a good outcome. You know, are there any other sort of, what are the key challenges or traps that you see ahead of us that we just should be aware of? In using these, well, you've called out one of the big ones, and that's garbage in, garbage out, you know, bad yep. data. And we, we've seen this with machine learning algorithms that are trained on the wrong data set. When, when applied will give you the wrong outcome. And, um, that's, that's certainly one of the things. Then I think we need to be aware of the ethics of, of using these tools as well. Um, data privacy is going to be really significant and the risk of compromising people's data privacy gets significant. So councils will hold more and more data uh, on people and will use this data to make uh, decisions. So we've got to have the ethical considerations of privacy, but also when an algorithm is making a decision which influences someone's life uh, or their ability to build something or not build something or how the city takes shape, we need to have explainability around that algorithm. So that that also gets important. So in the, these these issues are front and foremost in the healthcare sector, uh, where there is substantial use of artificial intelligence for, for diagnostics now. Um, and I think they will start to emerge in other areas too. So those are, are some of the things to be aware of. The, the critical thing, I think, is the town planner is in the driver's seat. 
using yeah. this technology and understanding how to, you know, you don't need to know what's under the bonnet of the car to be able to drive it, but you've got to have a pretty good appreciation of you know, how the, how the car will respond to all the sorts of things you're doing with the, the foot pedals, the steering wheels and the other controls. So what do you think the best way, like if I wanted to find out more about AI particularly, like how would I start to get involved in some of this as a town planner? Yeah, I, there's a hell of a lot of free material from, I'm just thinking because I've used like Google and TensorFlow are quite accessible and they have courses and they explain what it is and can take you into to using it a little bit. But I think for more serious application, we are actually looking for the university sector to build this into courses. Data science and, and a, which will include machine learning applied to town planning specifically. So we all learnt GIS when we did town planning, yeah. but I think some of these more advanced techniques need to get taught because, uh, ultimately we can use them. I think it's relevant in the law as well. A colleague of mine in a, in a law firm in Sydney is, is really appointing people with, uh, Python scripting capabilities who can, who can do data science and natural language processing. It just means that that lawyer can way more effectively interrogate all of the text and human written data better than just someone manually trying to search through it. They can write a code to do it and find what they're after a lot more quickly, whether it be documents or, or statements and so forth. So I think, I think those are some of the ways in, but but there, there's a lot of, of accessible training materials, but I think we also need to do a better job of making AI accessible to everyone yeah. and um, bringing it into university courses across pretty well all disciplines. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Because it's, as you say, we've sort of got to start learning it now so that when it is sort of time to apply it, we, we, we get it and we know what some of the challenges are, but also where it can really shine and, and optimise what we do. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And that's not unique to town planning. That's pretty much engineers, architects, lawyers, uh, healthcare professionals. It's, it's pretty broad because it's of its broad-based application. Yeah, cool. Okay, well, I think we've got one, we're time for one more question and I really yep. want to link it back to the Olympics. Um, yep. and, you know, so did this technology changes that are occurring over the coming decades, you know, we've got 10 years out from the Olympics. What, what should we be pitching for or what should sort of, technology be doing for us at that Olympics time in 2032? So I think we should be delivering the first Olympics with a complete digital twin where you can actually participate in sports. So have you heard of Zwift, you know, this this uh, software device you can put onto your um, exercise bicycle at home and do the Tour de France? No. You can, it's a thing you can compete against. You see it on the screen and you can compete against other riders. It's very cool. Uh, you put a cadence meter on your exercise bike and then you can get out there and ride in virtual Tour de France's and you, you see them riding near you and it's pretty pretty good. I think we should build that into pretty much every Olympic sport that we can, you know, from, from archery through to um, to, to the cycling events. Uh, building uh, a capability for all of humanity to participate in the Brisbane, the, the Queensland 2032 Olympics. Um, so that amazing. would be that would be one thing I reckon we should really drive towards uh, a fully virtualized version of the Olympics where anybody, including people who are dis- disabled, can get in there and actually compete uh, in the real stadiums, in the real locations of the Gold Coast. I think that would also be really good for tourism because done well, that has a lasting effect where people continue playing these games in and around the Gold Coast. The, and we would the have next, the capability to do that. So by we, then... We would. We, oh, look, oh. we already do. Like with, with um, the latest virtual reality creates huge capability to do this yeah. so that you could actually 
be fully immersed if you were doing archery. It would simulate the, the getting the arrow and putting it in the bow and, and shooting at the target, but you could look around and you would actually see the Gold Coast. Uh, and that would be, um, quite feasible. And I think, so I think that's one thing we want yeah. to do is create the virtual Olympics, the virtual twin Olympics, where it's, it's not just to look at it, you actually get and compete. And if you have an exercise bike or a cross trainer, it'll, or a rowing machine at home, you can, you can put it on, uh, cadence meters and there's ways of checking and verifying so you can get in, and compete with others. And I think that's one thing we want to get with the Olympics. We know in a lot of past Olympics, our hope that when we see high-performance athletes on the stage doing amazing stuff, that it translates to us going out and being fit. It doesn't, typically. Typically, yeah. we've found that it doesn't. But I think this might be a way of trying to crack that a little bit and making your involvement in the Olympics more than the just that of a spectator. You can be a spectator, but imagine if you could line up um, and be on your bicycle in the velodrome Against the world's best and see Absolutely. if you could, see if you could beat them. And that, yeah. the, and when they do the medals at the end, maybe they do the normal one, but then there's the, <laughs> yeah, the ones the, yeah. yeah, cool. So that's, well, that's one how thing. How do you do that with swimming? How do you jump in the pool with your headset on? I don't know yet. How, <laughs> like, I'm not sure how we'll do everything. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you can lie on the ironing board with a fetch. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Love yeah. it. There might be, you might be surprised. There might be some way you can simulate it. I'm not sure. The other, the other thing I think we can do is, is use data science to get a lot smarter about how we plan for the Olympics. So we know from history, Oxford University did a study on this and found that there were significant cost blowouts in pretty much every Olympics that's ever happened. Um, and the expenditure is incredibly high. I think that expenditure might be justified. So the Oxford study was controversial, but it found 172% cost blowouts on average with an average cost of around $12 billion for hosting an Olympics, which is huge. What they didn't do is measure the benefits, and we need to get a lot better at measuring the benefits and the, the legacy outcomes. You know, what we build for this Olympics in southeast Queensland must not just be for the Olympics. It needs to be for the 10 years that after that Olympics and also in the lead-up to that Olympics. So this is the longest lead-up to any Olympics before. So we can do the 10 years leading up to and the 10 years after and really look at legacy benefits and maximising those benefits, including the creation of industry. So my idea around the virtual Olympics is also to uh, have the software companies building all this gadgetry, all the devices and all the software, to be actually located on the Gold Coast, Brisbane, Sunshine Coast in tech hubs uh, so that they grow into a health tech industry beyond the, the Olympics. So I think that would be good. But, but we should also be looking at using data science to come up with the optimum portfolio of projects to transport infra infrastructure upgrades, um, urban up urban renewal projects, all of this, the things that we're doing, and it's really exciting what, what you can do, but we should look at us, that in a really systematic way across the entire southeast Queensland region to say, well, what is the optimum package of activities? And then we need to do monitoring and evaluation in the 10 years leading up to and the 10 years after the Olympics. And I think, yeah, this is something that the IOC needs to do as well because one of the consequences of the Olympics being so costly to deliver is that uh, fewer and fewer countries are actually competing to get the Olympics. Yeah. So, and, and there's a future where countries will give up on doing it if the um, 
benefit cost ratios can't be better demonstrated. I yeah. think we can do that for the first time ever in the Southeast Queensland 2032 Olympics. We've got a long lead time and we could achieve um, really good analytics around what is the optimum portfolio of projects to deliver to get not only a really good Olympics but the legacy benefits for the people of Queensland uh, that that stay. And I think that's that's where I think some of the other it gets in, it all goes into a confused mess and we just scramble to do stuff uh, with multiple players all doing it. And it's it's I don't know that that's sort of if we look at prior prior historic Olympics, that's what can happen. But if we could circumvent that and do a really coordinated, streamlined, um, systematic approach at that whole southeast Queensland level to identify and implement a portfolio and apply techniques to forecast projects likely to have cost flows. So another application of AI is we have algorithms that you can put a project proposal for a major development, be it a sports stadium or a new train, and it can it can actually analyze the proposal from the company proposing it to to determine the cost blowout risk. Uh, and it does this by learning from thousands of previous ones. So yep. use these techniques, again, to, to manage on the, the, the hundreds of thousands of projects that get funded in the lead up to 2032. We could actually use these sorts of technologies to forecast, well, look, this one's really high cost blowout risk. We might not want to go in that direction, given that we can get the same sorts of benefits from our project B instead. And then we can adjust the portfolio. And over a whole Olympic portfolio, that translates to many billions of dollars, but also much better outcomes. No country has yet really convincingly measured and evaluated the legacy benefits of, of the Olympics. And I think this is one of the, the you know, if, if the IOC want humanity to have the Olympics in the future, I think they've got to get way better at proving out this legacy benefit question. Totally. Totally. I think you've nailed it. I, I'd have nothing more to add on that. <laughs> But thank you for your time today, Stefan. I've really appreciated it. And it's been really great unpacking that topic. I think when I thought about it initially, I thought, oh, my goodness, technology is is a bit scary sometimes. But I think you really um, nicely unpacked exactly what that means. And and it doesn't seem so scary to me now. Oh, that's just wonderful, Nick. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's what we want more of. I hope that, yeah, it's not that scary. It's... um, it's something that, that can be really helpful. I think just the main thing is being in the driver's seat with it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And and thank you for tuning in to the Hustle and Bustle podcast this week. You can follow the show on Instagram or on LinkedIn. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please leave a rating and review. That's all from this episode. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you next time. Bye for now.